got here, pulled up and realized I'd left my Bible and my notes at home. And I thought to myself, well, should I just pull a D? <laughs> and I said back to myself, nope. And uh, drove back, came back. Uh, fortunately, I did all that early enough so I could get back in time for church. Let us pray. Search us, O oh God, we pray. And know our hearts. Try us, examine us, and know our thoughts. And see if there be any wicked or hurtful or destructive way within us. And in your mercies, lead us instead in the everlasting way. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be found acceptable in your sight. We humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people shall say, Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I think my sermon is pretty simple. It has two points, two basic ideas. First, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And second, I want to talk to you about our pastor, Reverend D. Kelly, and in that order. Now, you might notice that in terms of the text, it's the other way around, but we're going to start with Jesus. With this very well-known statement, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've all heard it, I suspect, and if you haven't, that's all right if it's your first time. But I think the most surprising thing about this statement is its location in Hebrews. Like, look again at this passage. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider their... I should actually have it memorized, shouldn't I? Then I'd be more like D. Uh, <laughs> consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I'm going to talk about that some later. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've thought about that. How do these two go together? It can't be that much of an uh, abrupt shift. Well... One of the things that helps me is to think about the overall theme of Hebrews. I'm not going to take a long time with that. Don't worry. Uh, but Hebrews, by the way, is not a letter. It's definitely a sermon. And we don't know who preached it or who wrote it. If your Bible says the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, your Bible is wrong. Uh, that's not in any of the uh, texts of the, the Greek. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Definitely wasn't Paul. I hope that, I, by the way, if you disagree with me, that's okay. It's not a matter of great debate. But I will tell you that one of my best theological friends, his name is Bob Millett. He's a leading thinker among uh, the Mormon uh, tradition, LDS. And he thinks that Paul wrote Hebrews. So that's, the, that's your company if you want to hold to that. So <laughs> I just thought I'd drop that in for you. But really, the important thing about this sermon 
is that it's written, if you will, to Jewish, early Jewish Christians who are facing great hardship. Um, some of those people that had taught them the word of God were in prison. That was the outcome of their life, by the way. They were imprisoned. Perhaps some killed, but we know that some people lost their property. We're told that in the book of Hebrews. That Christians were being persecuted, probably a local persecution, but very difficult. Hard. Suffering. And this sermon appeals to Jesus as one who has suffered before us, the pioneer of our faith, who has dealt with temptations in ways that we have not and yet was victorious. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, underscoring his absolute faithfulness as our intercessor and priest. That, of course, is also important in Hebrews. Maybe the, the introduction is the best way to go. Here's how Hebrews begins. By the way, I'm going to let you know that the benediction today will be at the end of Hebrews. So we're going to do the beginning, the end, and a little bit in the middle. But by the way, that benediction at the end of Hebrews is like just the best benediction in the world. You know, if Reuben Welch were here, he'd say it should be in the Bible. And it is. The beginning is this way. In times past, God spoke to our ancestors. The spoke there is in simple past tense, you know, just spoke. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. See, we got our ancestors and through the prophets. We know it's a Jewish writer and a Jewish audience. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many and various ways. But now, Hebrews says, but now in these recent days, God has spoken. We call that the present perfect tense. Has spoken. See the difference? God spoke. He doesn't deny that. But now, God has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus is God's ultimate authoritative word spoken to us. The Bible tells us so. So you might remember the Gospel of John saying that the, the very word who is, shares in God's own nature, the, God's eternal word became, well, became what? Yeah, you, I thought you knew. Became flesh and lived among us as Jesus. God's ultimate speech and revelation. That's pretty cool. It's kind of a weird sort of revelation. It's a person. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation to us. And so the writer of the Hebrews in this sermon says, look, uh, Jesus is the final word. Follow him. Listen to him. Take up his way. Follow him all the way to Calvary and beyond. That's the beginning of this sermon. God spoke through the prophets. That God has spoken. You almost want to make it like a spoken, 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 you know, echo down through the history. God is still speaking, and God's ultimate speech is Jesus. 
Well, what is it then that God has said? What is God saying? We, it's great to say that Jesus is God's speech, God's word. We might want a little more like, okay, what do we do with that? What is that word? What is God saying? And of course, we do have four gospels that give us our start on that. That's why they're at the beginning of our New Testament. Because we believe through the life, the words, the teachings, the interactions, the healings of Jesus of Nazareth, his standing before Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection is all God's word to us, for sure. And at this point, with those four Gospels, you know, well, there's a lot of material there. So I, I get to exercise, because you know, I, I can't preach all day, so I'm just going to go to my favorite Gospel. Uh, and Austin didn't know I was going to go to this passage, Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start there. I'm, I'm going to say that this is God's word to us this morning. I'm just going to be bold and say that. Through Jesus Christ, God says, come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, you know, that's where Austin stopped. I don't know if it was Austin, but I'm going to pick on him because he never took a class from me. And, and so I, I got to get in on him at some point. This seems to be the right time. Uh, there's really more to that invitation. I, I like, I will give you rest. That sounds very restful. You might think that it, it gives you license to take a nap today. But, well, later, you can. But right now, it continues. I will give you rest. And the next part doesn't sound so restful. Take my yoke upon you. My goodness, that's, that's a great way to interrupt a nap. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke is Jesus' teaching, I guarantee you. It's Jesus' teaching interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. As a Jewish teacher, he's inviting us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See how those go together? They're saying the same thing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Isn't it great that Jesus invites us to learn from him? Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I want you to notice this. Learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to learn from him on the basis that he is gentle and humble in heart. So I think it's probably likely that we can intuit that one of the things that Jesus wants to teach us, to form within us, is gentleness and humility of heart. Now this, I'm going to reach into my second point for just a second to suggest I have uh, rarely met a, a fellow Christian, let alone a pastor, who as gentle and as humble of heart as Pastor D. Kelly. I believe that Jesus, his teacher and Lord, he has taken on that yoke. He exhibits that gentleness and humility of heart so beautifully. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me. Okay, well, what do we learn? Again, we got all those Gospels. We got Paul's letters, lots of stuff. I'm going to stay with Matthew because I think this is the very heart of that yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. It means my yoke will fit your shoulders. It, it fits. My burden is light. I will not overburden you with tons of minutia of laws. My burden is light. Doesn't mean it's just super duper easy. I'll tell you why. Later in the same gospel, Jesus is asked by a Jewish theologian, teacher, what's the greatest command in the Torah, in the laws of Moses? Some of you might remember that uh, probably after Jesus' time, the rabbis counted up 613 commandments in the laws of Moses. That's a lot to keep track of, 613. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest one? And Jesus replied in a way that was not unusual in his time. The greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your energies, all of your being. Love God with all you are. Now, really, he satisfied the question there, right? The question was, what's the greatest command? Jesus answered. And then he, like, puts on this important P.S. There's a second one like and do the first one. You tell me what it is. Go ahead. I'm a professor. I like participation. I heard it out there. I heard it from Lexi first. A for the day. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. As I was kind of going over this with my wife, Janice, yesterday, she, she pushed me to, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, my goodness. I got Brad Kelly here who knows the Hebrew, you know. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Uh, I think I've read from some Hebrew scholars that love your neighbor as yourself means something like this. Love your neighbor as though it were yourself. Look at this other person and see the common humanity that you share. Love your neighbor as though that were you, and you knowing you with all of your hopes, dreams, desires, failures, disappointments, needs, you know, for love, for food, for a roof over our heads, for the love of our children and grandchildren and parents and just all the ways in which we need and see that that other person is like you. And then act accordingly. That's at least a beginning. Love that neighbor as though it were your very self standing in front of you. And understand, they have an interior life like you do. You know, there was... Uh, I'm going to go over to the Gospel of Luke for a second because it's the only place. If it was in Matthew, I'd just stay with Matthew. But in Luke, we read that there was another Jewish theologian who was uh, probably a little nervous about this whole love your neighbor as yourself thing. Maybe because he'd seen Jesus in action and Jesus seemed a little, uh, a little too free with this love of neighbor. 
So this theologian asks, well, who is my neighbor? Isn't that an interesting question? Who is my neighbor? Like, help me draw the line between neighbor and not. Okay? Help me to draw that line. Who is my neighbor? And some of you might recall that that question, great question, great question, launches Jesus into probably his most famous parable. Parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. Now, you know the parable, so I'm just going to hit one thing that I think is really significant here. The first two figures, of course, in this parable, who were religious functionaries, uh, kept their distance. They kept their distance from the man in the ditch. There are reasons for that. They needed to stay ritually pure. They needed to have ritual purity to serve in the temple. I get it. So Jesus talks about a priest and a Levite, and uh, probably they didn't want to risk the possibility that that's a corpse down there because corpses are unclean. Go to the other side of the road. I'll tell you, every one of Jesus' listeners just about had a heart attack when he said, and then a certain Samaritan. The most hated group of people, right, by the Jews. Long, deep history of animosity, even violence. And Jesus said, then this Samaritan came along, who, by the way, we think probably the guy in the road was trying to avoid Samaritans by taking that road. That's another whole story, so I won't go there. But I love it. He's lying there by the road, and the Samaritan, Jesus says, drew near. I want you to hear that. He drew near. The first two kept their distance. He drew near. He got close enough to see the human there who was like himself and was moved with compassion. Why was he moved with compassion? Again, in terms of the parable, because he got close enough to see the real human being there. And dare I say that I think we have a pastor who is teaching and leading and embodying us toward that kind of a bold neighborliness. Because, you know, after the parable was over, I, say, I almost got to just preach a whole sermon on that. After that parable was over, remember what the question was? Who is my neighbor? Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's one of the best things in the whole Bible. Jesus took that question, turned it inside out, stuck a stick of dynamite next to it, and blew it up. Who proved to be the neighbor to the person who was in need? Can you see the difference? Who's my neighbor? Who was the neighbor? If I go around asking who is my neighbor and who isn't, I'm not really hearing the parable. Because I might go, well, my neighbor is anybody who's in need. And that might be true, but the more radical point is that Jesus says, you and I, if we follow him, are to become the neighbor. If we become the neighbor, by the way, the word neighbor comes from that old English word nigh, which means near. A neighbor is somebody that you get close to. And having gotten close, this Samaritan saw the humanity of this person 
took compassion and cared for his needs. So Jesus says, who proved to be the neighbor? Wow. And you know, you know the theologian, we like to make a point that, well, he didn't even say Samaritan. You know, I don't want to over-psychologize it, but he did say, well, the one who showed mercy. And we all know that what Jesus said next was, well, go and do likewise. And you better believe that's a word of God through Jesus Christ to us today. Go and do likewise. I'll tell you, um, loving neighbors, come on. Some neighbors are pretty strange. They may not seem very lovely. I'm sure that the same could be said of me by some of my neighbors. And that reminds me of something that's also important. And I believe my brother Kelly will appreciate this. He knows it. He knows where I'm going. I have a feeling. But the same chapter in Leviticus that instructs us to love our neighbor as ourselves, Leviticus 19, a little bit later, here's what it says. Do not oppress or treat unkindly the stranger who lives in your midst. Neighbor, stranger. Neighbor, fellow Israelite, somebody that you're close to, somebody that basically sees the world you do. Your tribe, that's neighbor. Stranger, somebody who doesn't. They're strange. That's why they're strangers. They may even be stranger than a stranger. And G, or, or, or the laws of Moses say, love, no kidding, love the stranger as yourself. Oh my goodness. I was in my 30s before I discovered that. I was a professor before I read, or at least before that verse hit me, the same construction as love your neighbor as yourself, in the same chapter, the word of God through Moses is love the stranger as yourself. Because you yourselves once were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be the outsider, the rejected, the marginalized, the oppressed, the forgotten. Love the stranger as your very self. And I want to make this all about D, and that's really my part, second part, but we have a pastor who is teaching us in that direction. Well, if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Jesus, therefore, is gentle and humble in heart, back then... Today and forever, Jesus himself describes himself as gentle and humble in heart, which always blows me away. Well, maybe we don't need teachers. We've had the ultimate. God has spoken his ultimate word to us in Jesus. Maybe we don't really need the church. And we just stay home and read our Bible and read about Jesus. And, but you know that's not true. Isn't it amazing then? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. One of the things, by the way, I know one other place where the word remember is used in, this, in, this, in Hebrews, and it's remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are imprisoned. As though you shared in the body with them, because basically you do. Remember those of your community who have been put into jail for following Jesus. And here it says, 
remember your leaders who spoke. That's past tense. Who spoke the word of God to you. Look at the outcome of their life. And I'm going to say again, it only hit me this morning that probably the outcome that he's talking about is, well, at least a lot of them are in jail, certainly persecuted, probably lost property. And he says, consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. You might say, well, no thanks. Consider it. But remember what it says in Hebrews 11 about the great heroes of faith. Some were sawn in two, remember that? Cut in half. Uh, there's a whole long list of things that happened to him. It's not good stuff. <sighs> Consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. But we might, again, assume that we have ro no real need of teachers or pastors or leaders since we have Jesus. Um, I think now, I'm going to dig this out, uh, of a wonderful statement by St. Augustine, writing, what, uh, 16 centuries ago now. And uh, listen to this beautiful thing. He talks about Jesus as the unchangeable truth, first of all. The unchangeable truth fits nicely with Hebrews, doesn't it? But he also says, because we are human beings, especially now, 2,000 years later, we are left as a community of interpretation to interpret together that truth. We don't do it on our own. And we do have pastors and leaders and teachers to help us in that. And even in Augustine's time, there were people that were, you know, very sanctifiedly self-sufficient. Who needs a teacher? I got Jesus. Who needs church? Who needs those people? Jesus is in my heart. And here's what Augustine wrote. Let us not be too proud to learn what has to be learned with the help of other people. Huh. Why? Because if God did not teach us through the agency of other people, then, in Augustine's word, and I love this, love itself, which binds people together with the knot of unity, would have no scope for pouring minds and hearts in together. Wow, I love that image. Love pouring in minds and hearts together, as it were, and blending them with one another. Ooh, cool. If human beings were never to learn anything from each other, then that wouldn't be the case. And Augustine says it is the case. We are created for one another. Remember, uh, you know, I mentioned, well, maybe I didn't. I did. Reuben Welch, we really do need each other. We really do. Now... I told you the second part of this was about our pastor, but it's not just about him. <laughs> I think about this first point, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then this second point, that we nonetheless remember our teachers, our leaders, those who have spoke the word of God to us. And we consider their way of life. And by the way, the verb consider, same thing. A couple chapters earlier, we're, we read, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, who faced all kinds of opposition to the point of shedding blood, far beyond any of us, and yet continued to be faithful. So it's interesting that remember our leaders, like those who are in prison, consider our leaders as we consider Jesus. 
And I began to think about just some of the people, teachers, leaders, and my list is not exhaustive. It can't be. But I think about this church and its history. And I do think, I got to tell you, at the top of the list for me is Reuben Welch. You may not know Reuben, but for me he's at the top of the list. When I think about somebody who really did preach and teach that Jesus is the ultimate word, the revelation of God, I, Reuben, oh my goodness. But Norm Shoemaker, Janine Metcalf, Frank Carver, more recently, Luann Walling, who came back to San Diego with a nice boy with her. She became, you know, Luann Martin. She brought this, seems like a nice guy, Russ, who's also preached here a good deal. Russ has a baby brother named Carl, who teaches here. Dean Nelson, Rebecca Laird, Brad Kelly, Daryl Falk, Herb Prince. Art Siemens, and the list goes on. It goes on. Shelley James. People who have invested and poured out their lives, their teaching of the Word of God to us all. Various age groups. Lexi right now with the young people. God bless you. Not everybody can be a youth pastor. Amen. We need one another. And we have a pastor who has been teaching that to us and embodying that to us for these years. So even as we think this morning about Jesus Christ, who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is gentle and humble in heart from now to eternity, and who wants to teach us his way, to put on his yoke. We have people who continue that ministry, teaching, living by example. It's great. It doesn't say, oh, don't pay attention to your leaders because they'll probably fail you and, you know, just look to Jesus. I know that's a typical thing. Actually, the New Testament doesn't encourage that. It calls the teachers to a high level of responsibility. But all of us, as the body of Christ, have ways in which we contribute. It might not be through teaching or leading, but you know there's all kinds of other ways that we contribute to the health of the body of Christ together. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember your leaders. Consider their way of life and the outcome of their life and imitate imitate their faith. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, O oh God, for your word, eternally and ultimately spoken in Jesus. O oh Lord Jesus, you have promised that where two or three are gathered in your midst, you're right here with us. We know that, we believe it, we feel it today. And will you bring to mind, even if none of the names that I mentioned, will you bring to mind for all of us 
the people, the teachers, the examples who have poured into our lives. May we remember them today and consider the outcome of their way of life and by the power of your Holy Spirit enable us to imitate their faith. We pray for one another this morning. We pray for Pastor D and for Kay and for their family, their children. But we do lift up one another. We pray for those who are ill, who are not with us, for as the body of Christ, we do need one another. And we pray that your spirit then would take these words and whatever of them is, uh, are useful and helpful, may you uh, teach us further. And guide us, we pray, into all truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. And once again, all of God's people shall say, Amen. Amen.